Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where we look at the films of director Ivan Reitman. I'm Ross May. Film buffs love discussing the works of directors like Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, and Chuck Russell. You know, he directed The Mask and The Scorpion King. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not aware of anyone exploring the works of Ivan Reitman, so I thought this would be fun. This is our episode zero, so rather than cover a feature film by Reitman, I'll be going over his background in a short film he did in college called Orientation. And jumping ahead, I'll look at the Netflix film A Futile and Stupid Gesture. It's a biographical movie that's mostly about Doug Kenny at National Lampoon, but it'll tie back into Ivan Reitman's start in the film industry. But first, a bit about me. I loved the real Ghostbusters cartoon growing up. The premise of Ghostbusting is so fun for kids, and I loved the characters and all the toys. There are home videos of four-year-old me running around the backyard chasing invisible ghosts and using an empty Kleenex box on a string as a ghost trap. One day my dad called out to me to come see something on the TV. I raced over, and it was the end of the movie Ghostbusters. I saw something familiar moving behind buildings. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Yes, it was the big reveal of the Marshmallow Man at the end of the movie, and this blew my mind. What's funny is that my reaction to it wasn't what was intended. I didn't find it a joke or weird because I was familiar with the Marshmallow Man from every opening on the cartoon show, so instead I found this amazing that there was a movie of my favorite cartoon. I think I watched Ghostbusters 1 and 2 soon after that, but it probably wasn't sometime into the 90s that I really understood that the movie came first and the cartoon was based off of it. And Ghostbusters, real or not, have remained one of my favorite things in all of pop culture. And like a lot of people, Ghostbusters became my entry point to a lot of other things. I love the Blues Brothers a heck of a lot, and through that, I actually discovered a love for R&B and blues music. I appreciate Saturday Night Live, Stripes and Groundhog Day are both great movies, and I could go on. I think when fans talk about Ghostbusters, they talk about the importance of Dan Aykroyd's interest in the supernatural, Harold Ramis's understanding of comedy, and then Bill Murray ad-libbing all over the place. For some reason, fans don't talk as much about Ivan Reitman as a director, which is why I want to go through all of his films. Right now, I think I've seen half of them, and some I haven't seen since I was a kid. For example, I only have hazy memories of Kindergarten Cop. Oh, to finish off my rambling little autobiography, my other big love as a kid was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, then I grew up. Okay, okay, more to that story. These days I work as a writer, primarily in comic books. I actually write for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and got my start working for their co-creator Peter Laird. On the very periphery of Ghostbusters, I also contributed in a small way when the real Ghostbusters came out on DVD from Time Life back in 2009. I have a friend named James Etock, and he's become the go-to guy for information on 1980s cartoons. He's published a magazine called Serial Geek that I wrote for, and he's provided content and helped produce DVD collections like He-Man, She-Ra, Dungeons & Dragons, and Time Life had him work on the real Ghostbusters release. Anyway, I knew some things about that cartoon as well, particularly the episode Collect Call of Cthulhu, so James used my information and mentioned me by name in the commentary, so I'm rather pleased by that. And that's my history with Ghostbusters and Ivan Reitman's films. Now, like all big-time podcasts, we're going to stop for a commercial break and then come back to talk about Ivan Reitman himself. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. 
The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. We are back, which is odd because we've never left. Okay, I thought we should delve into a brief biography on Ivan Reitman, and this definitely is brief. To my knowledge, nobody has written an extensive biography on him beyond what I'm about to tell you. If I seem to give short shrift to important parts, like where and when he met his wife Genviev, it's because this is all the information there is out there that I'm aware of. In any case, here's a quick overview with a few stops along the way to talk about people he's worked with. Ivan Reitman was born in Slovakia in 1946 to Ladislav, or Leslie, Reitman and his wife Clara. During World War II, Slovakia was controlled by Nazi Germany, and Ivan's mother nearly died in the Jewish Holocaust while his father was a resistance fighter. Life was still dangerous following the war, as the Soviets were taking control of the country, so the family fled. They came to Canada as refugees in 1950 and settled in Toronto. At first, Mr. and Mrs. Reitman worked at a laundromat, and years later they owned a car wash. Ivan grew up in Toronto with his two sisters, Aggie and Susan. He attended Oakwood Collegiate High School, then McMaster University in Hamilton, where he studied music. Ivan was the student president of the Hamilton University Film Board. It was during this time that he directed his first film, a short piece called Orientation. This was also when he met fellow McMaster students Eugene Levy, Martin Short, and Dave Thomas, who were all acting in the university theater productions. After earning his bachelor's degree in 1969, Ivan returned to Toronto to work at City TV. He befriended a young station announcer who was also performing in sketch comedies. Can you recognize this voice? C-I-T-Y, Channel 79, Cable 7, Toronto. The Wild, Wild West. Watch every week as the athletic Jim West and the multifaceted Artemis Gordon defeat inventive criminal geniuses and rescue young damsels from distress. Sunday nights at 9. I knew you'd get it. That was Dan Aykroyd, and the sketch comedies Aykroyd performed in were produced by Lorne Michaels, so Aykroyd had already met probably the two most important producers in his life when he was still a teenager. And Dan Aykroyd wasn't the only actor Reitman knew. He met Rick Moranis and Andrea Martin around this time, or maybe even a bit earlier, so by this time he was familiar with most of the cast that would form SCTV. In 1971, Reitman directed a movie called Foxy Lady that featured Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy. I'll tell you something, for a while I actually wondered if Foxy Lady was some hoax perpetuated by the internet. I've never heard Ivan Reitman talk about it, you can't see it online, and it's never had a home video release on any format. I only believed it definitely existed because Andrea Martin talked about it on a July 2018 interview on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast. Apparently Foxy Lady does exist, but it might only be in Ivan Reitman's garage. So that's a movie I definitely won't be covering unless it gets a release right away. If you look at the start of Ivan Reitman's career, you'll see a lot of producer credits, and you might wonder how a guy in his 20s ended up producing things. I think it speaks to his ability to make entertainment happen, a skill he learned while working in television, but also definitely speaks to his drive as a creative individual. Take, for instance, the musical Spellbound in 1973. It debuted in Toronto at the Royal Alexandra Theatre with a book by David Cronenberg. Yes, David Cronenberg did a book to a musical, and the band was led by Paul Schaefer. Here we go. Two. See, there are important people all over Reitman's early life. 
Spellbound moved from Toronto to New York next year and was renamed The Magic Show. It also morphed into something different, with new music and a new book, but I want to point out that Reitman's career could have gone in several different directions at this point. He had a hand in a successful Broadway show that ran four years. He befriended horror director David Cronenberg, and if you read the first few years of Reitman's film career, he seemed on track to become an important figure in horror movies himself. He directed Cannibal Girls and would produce other horror movies. But Ivan chose comedy. In a 2013 CBC radio interview, Reitman said that he cold-called Maddie Simmons, publisher of National Lampoon, and explained he wanted to bring the magazine's brand of humor to movie screens. That didn't happen just then, but based on Reitman's success as a musical producer, they put together the stage show National Lampoon Lemmings. Lemmings was an off-Broadway show and a moderate success. More importantly, it was a counterculture success. It's called Lemmings based on the opening number, where the joke is that the audience is attending a Woodstock-style festival where everybody plans to get high and commit mass suicide. It's edgy and funnier than how I just made it sound. Can I have your attention, please? Can I have your attention? Come on, hold it down. Okay, first of all, I'd like to welcome you to the Woodshuck Memorial Festival of Peace, Love, and Death. Okay, now we all know why we came here, a million of us, we came here to off ourselves, right? And from now on, man, it's a free concert! It's free! Okay, all right, now, uh, just because it's a free concert doesn't mean you can do anything you want to do, you know? It means you gotta do what you're told. Okay? All right, now for all you people who are into macrobiotics, we want you to off yourselves over in the South 40 to be used for organic fertilizer. Now if your buddy's too stoned off himself, do him a favor. Roll him up in his sleeping bag and drag him over to where the tractors can run him down. Okay, now as you know, there isn't enough food to go around. There just isn't enough food. So remember, the man next to you is your dinner. Most of the acts are parodies of popular musicians like Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, and the Rolling Stones. There were quite a few performers in Lemmings, including Christopher Guest, Chevy Chase, and John Belushi. They're all funny, but Belushi's performance is particularly poignant with a skit about how Chevy Chase's drugs are too weak for Belushi. I was in Newark, John. In Newark? Yeah, I was on vacation. Oh, wow. Nice vacation? Yeah, it's good, yeah? Yeah, it's pretty down there. Yeah. Hey, how you doing, old buddy? Yeah. You got any dope? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I don't mean to ask you a joke. Hey! Every time I see you, you're actually my friend. So. You know that about, John? That was high-grade Bolivian shit. I buffed that shit myself, John. Oh, my nose got off, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. What about the acid? Did you get off on the acid? What acid? You son of a bitch. <laughs> what acid? What do you mean, what acid, John? What acid? The LSD-25, man. You mean the LSD-0. <laughs> <laughs> you put me on and me I took 12 and nothing happened. <laughs> 
I don't. Was your job with that different colored stuff that tastes like sweet tart? Yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. You didn't get over that? No, I didn't. Hey, I'm really sorry, man. Really yeah, sorry, man. Enough. Come here, come here. Now just relax. You chew on those peyote buttons. Yeah, I did, man. I threw up. <laughs> Lemmings ends with the cast all dead on stage after an intense music number, and the audience is encouraged to play dead in their seats. There were more National Lampoon stage shows that toured, as well as a radio program. They picked up Joe Flaherty, Gilda Radner, Bill and Brian Doyle Murray, and Harold Ramis. I want to tell you this story. When Ramis died in 2014, Reitman told Time Magazine, quote, Harold stood out because it was clear he was their unofficial leader, the man to whom they could all turn to solve both creative problems and any of the myriad conflicts that would arise among this high-powered ensemble. End quote. Reitman also recalled how once in Toronto, the cast performed their sketches at a bar and expected the place to be cleared out for a new audience. That didn't happen, and the crowd were all drinking and excited to see more. The performers panicked, as they had already used all their material. Reitman said, quote, Harold pulled the cast together and suggested quietly, Let's just do the show again, except this time we'll change every joke and every punchline. Thinking back 40 years later, I only wish there was a video record of that amazing performance. It was one of the most remarkable displays of comedy brilliance, dexterity, and borderline insanity. End quote. Fast forward to 1976, when Ivan Reitman married Genevieve Robert. I wish I knew more about their meeting, but all I really know is that they were already dating back when he directed Cannibal Girls. Fast forward again to 77, and National Lampoon's Animal House was being filmed after years in development. The script was written by Harold Ramis, Doug Kenny, and Chris Miller, but Reitman also had plenty of discussions with them and helped shape the story. Reitman wanted to direct, but Universal Studios president Ned Tannen vetoed that idea due to Reitman not having enough experience. Oh, incidentally, Ned Tannen was seen as such a bully that Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis named their bully Biff Tannen in the 1985 movie Back to the Future. Right, so that's the same Universal Tannen who said Reitman couldn't direct Animal House. Ivan Reitman would end up only producing Animal House while John Landis directed. Ivan and Genevieve also had Jason, their first child, born at the same time in Montreal. Ten days after Jason was born, the family flew down to Oregon and the little baby Jason was on set. Animal House defied Universal's expectations, including Ned Tannen, who wasn't very keen on the project, and it earned $141 million on a $3 million budget. That makes Animal House one of the most profitable movies ever for return on investment. It made John Belushi a movie star, got National Lampoon more movie deals, and didn't do much of anything for Ivan Reitman. He said that everyone got job offers after Animal House except for him. Reitman got in touch with two friends from university, Dan Goldberg, who starred in his short film Orientation, and Len Bloom, and together they conceived and wrote the script for Meatballs. I probably won't mention Goldberg and Bloom a whole lot in the podcast going forward, but you can see them as writers and producers all over the place, working together and apart. Stripes, Heavy Metal, Space Jam, the Beethoven movies, Evolution. Dan Goldberg was a producer on the Hangover movies, which makes sense when you see that it's sort of connected back to that National Lampoon feeling, though Goldberg didn't work on Animal House himself. Meatballs was another smash hit, earning $43 million on a budget of less than $2 million. He and Genevieve had two daughters, Catherine and Caroline. And then from my outsider's perspective, Ivan Reitman finally started getting opportunities to direct, and his biography just becomes a long list of movies. I don't know if Reitman's a very private individual, or it's just worked out that there's not as much to say about his working life. In 1998, Ivan Reitman and producer Tom Pollock founded the Montecito Picture Company in California. It produces Reitman's films as well as other directors. Some films you might recognize include Old School, 
which was very much inspired by Animal House, the Trailer Park Boys movie, which is very Canadian, Jason Reitman's Up in the Air, and the 2016 version of Ghostbusters. In 2007, Ivan Reitman was inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame, and yes, Canada has a Walk of Fame in Toronto, if you didn't know. We can also talk about his films that never materialized. At one point in the 80s, he, Joe Medjick, and Michael Gross were working on turning Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy into a movie. I think they probably had the right comedic sensibilities for it. Also in the 80s, Reitman was set to direct the Batman movie at one point, and his version would have had Bill Murray as Batman and David Bowie as the Joker. Man, David Bowie as the Joker sounds pretty cool. But we shouldn't really dwell on this too much, because there were dozens of different treatments and directors for Batman before it reached Tim Burton. Reitman might have directed Batman's super friend Wonder Woman as well in the 90s, but that film also fell through. Then, there's the biggest sequel that people have been waiting years for. Something with a number three in it. Triplets. Ivan Reitman has wanted to do a sequel to his 1988 film Twins for a long time. Twins starred Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the idea is to have Eddie Murphy come in as the third brother. Okay, okay, there's one more thing. Ghostbusters 3 and we'll be covering the development of Ghostbusters sequels past 1989 at a later date. You've got the 2009 video game with the original cast, the 2016 reboot movie, a bunch of discarded scripts and ideas, and now a movie in development directed by Ivan's son, Jason Reitman. Geez, I don't know, everyone. Do we really want someone directing whose dad says the Ghostbusters are full of crap and that's why they went out of business? So we'll be going through Ivan Reitman's work together, but we should really make one last stop. Remember his parents, Leslie and Clara Reitman? They were refugees from Slovakia and came to Toronto not speaking English. They owned a car wash in downtown Toronto. Years later, that car wash was turned into a parking lot, and if you know anything about Toronto today, the downtown property is extremely valuable. Well, Ivan and his sister Aggie and Susan donated that land to TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, along with a cash donation that totaled $22 million Canadian. TIFF also received donations from the governments of Canada, Ontario, and telecommunications company Bell Canada. Using all those donations, Tiff was able to have a permanent home, partially on land that the Reitman family owned when they first came to Canada. Leslie and Clara had long since passed away, but on September 12, 2010, their children and grandchildren were present for the opening of the Bell Lightbox. The 46-story tower has condos, one owned by Ivan Reitman himself, while the lower levels have five cinemas. The Bell Lightbox is now the permanent home of the Toronto International Film Festival, and that whole area has been renamed the Reitman Block. We'll be right back with a look at Ivan Reitman's short film, Orientation. Let's talk about Orientation, Ivan Reitman's first film from 1968, the year before he graduated from McMaster University. Produced and directed by Reitman, starring Dan Goldberg as basically himself. You may remember I mentioned Goldberg as a writer and producer for a lot of Reitman's films. This film is 22 minutes, and something I didn't realize until recently, at Wizard World Chicago in August of 2018, Reitman mentioned that he actually got 20th Century Fox to distribute the short film, so at least a few people saw it outside of his friends. I watched Orientation off the Cannibal Girls Blu-ray, but it's also easy for you to find. Just search Ivan Reitman and Orientation, and you'll find it online at McMaster University's digital archive. So here is the plot. Most of the movie has no dialogue. Dan is an uptight young man who goes to university and meets his roommate, who is too cool to bother with him. The food in the cafeteria is bad, and there's a funny bit where suddenly everyone has dogs and they all feed their food to the dogs rather than eat it themselves. Makes you wonder why they went to the cafe at all. On his first night in college, Dan is kidnapped by a group of guys for hazing, and they just dump him out of town and he has to walk back to campus in his pajamas. Then comes one of my favorite bits. Dan tries to sign up for classes, but this involves going to several offices. There are shots of him walking around and meeting multiple people, but they always direct him to somewhere else, and he's represented as this shape on a maze that's trying to reach its destination. I've had experiences like that. 
Next, Dan tries out the gym where he shows how inept he is while another guy is constantly doing push-ups and chastises him. They go to a sauna, and the guy is still doing push-ups. This is where Dan meets a pretty girl named Lynn Logan. Cut to an English literature class that's about the poet John Milton, and it's pretty ridiculous. The professor's lecture is boring and also makes no sense. At one point, he mentions the apple should be the hero of Paradise Lost. I want to stop for a moment here, because years later we'll see this is the clearest example of Reitman having an effect on Animal House. In Animal House, when you meet the cool professor played by Donald Sutherland, he's talking about Paradise Lost and Milton as well. The scenes do different things, but I thought it was neat when I realized this connection. Sticking with the class in orientation, students are all behaving in amusing ways. One guy takes way too many notes for the stupid lecture, while a girl has done a crazy amount of doodles, and there's a pair of lovebirds ready to smooch. So yeah, the classes at university are pretty pointless. Dan meets Lynn again at the cafeteria, and they seem to hit it off. That night, there's a rock concert on campus, and he hopes to see her there, but she's arrived with another guy, and he just leaves. In a very abrupt turn, Dan brings a video camera on campus and starts recording some people, including a guy who tries to photocopy some money. He springs his camera on Lynn, and she's immediately into it, and then he starts taking glamour video shots of her all over town, despite the fact that glamour photography is a real thing, while with a video camera it's just weird. The rest of the movie becomes a montage of them spending time together and pretty shots of her. In the most Canadian moment of the film, the two spot a woodchuck and try to get as close to it as possible. The film crew definitely just spotted a woodchuck while filming and couldn't pass up the opportunity of putting it in the film. So it's implied Dan and Lynn are a couple now, no indication of what her relationship was to the guy at the party, and Dan's roommate finally takes notice when Dan brings her over. The roommate leaves, even shaking Dan's hand out of respect and admiration for bringing a woman over, which is blah. Then the film ends with Dan and Lynn walking away together. Here's a quick review of the movie. It's competently done. And I get it, it's supposed to show this square being overwhelmed by university, being awkward and not physically impressive, but then he shows his artsy side and a cute girl likes him. The downside is what you'd expect, that Lynn is absolutely a trophy, and she doesn't speak or have any personality. This movie is probably fine if a bit boring on its own, but it's also the sort of thing that toxic men would love. It also gives you an idea of where Ivan, Dan Goldberg, and probably their friends' minds were at, that if girls can just recognize how cool they are that they make movies, they'd get to go on dates. Orientation is also interesting to me for having the same subject matter as Animal House. Of course, a college movie isn't that unique of an idea, but Dan's short journey of being a dweeb into loosening up is basically the same trajectory as Pinto and Flounder in Animal House. I'd say this movie is just okay, and even that's kind of taking into account that it's a student film. The dog gag was pretty good, and the best sequence was him in the maze in the admin building. And now, it's time for a recurring bit. I'm calling this The Big Board, where we rank all of Ivan Reitman's films. I'm pretty sure that's all podcasts are, ads for subscription services, and ranking things. Orientation goes up on the list as the only thing, and, and no wait, Ghostbusters is already up there at number one. Orientation is not as good as Ghostbusters. Can anything else beat Ghostbusters? No, it won't. Going from Reitman's first work in the 60s all the way to 2018 on Netflix, let's look at a futile and stupid gesture. I thought I would talk about this today, because while it's not a Reitman film, it sort of comes at things that I discussed in his biography. If you don't know, a futile and stupid gesture is spoken by Tim Matheson's character, Otter, in the movie Animal House. It's towards the end of the movie, after the Deltas have been kicked out of college, and in a normal movie you'd think they'd have some plan to get back in, or do something clever, but instead what they plan to do really is futile, and it's just go all out and get revenge on everyone else even though it doesn't help themselves at all. Maybe I should back up. This came out on Netflix in January of 2018. It's based on a book that I have not read by Josh Karp, 
Will Forte is the star playing Doug Kenny, a Harvard English student in the 1960s. He's a screw-up but also witty, and becomes best friends with Henry Beard, a nerd always smoking a pipe who's got a drier sense of humor, though they both love raunchy and tasteless jokes. Together, they put out the best Harvard Lampoon that publication has ever seen, then decide to keep the good times rolling after graduation by creating the National Lampoon magazine. The financial backing for National Lampoon comes from Maddie Simmons, a co-founder of The Diners Club, so that would be Discover Cards today, not that Maddie Simmons has any connection to it anymore. What I like about this film is that it has Martin Mull narrating. You might know Martin Mull as that private detective on Arrested Development, the one who's always wearing bad disguises and then surprises Lucille. Anyway, Mull acts out what Doug Kenny might be like today if he had lived into middle age. There's a part where he introduces famous people you know, basically the Saturday Night Live cast, and these actors are obviously not Chevy Chase, not John Belushi, not Gilda Radner, and on and on. The narrator basically says, yeah, but we did what we could, and also, I didn't look like Will Forte. Also, here's a bunch of other things we had to change for this movie to work, so the nature of it being a comedy and pretty loose helps this a bit. There's even a part earlier on where he acknowledges that there were even more people involved with the magazine's success, and a bunch of people with their names crowd around him, but since he says they're in a movie with a set structure and only have so much time, they're just going to stick to around four of the writers they had in the office. National Lampoon gets sued a lot, but becomes a big business, and Doug Kenny and Henry Beard become millionaires. After this, Henry quits the magazine, and the movie frames this as Doug becoming even more rudderless and unhinged than he ever was before. But he does co-write Animal House with Harold Ramis and Chris Miller. The actor Lonnie Ross pops in to play Ivan Reitman briefly, and he does kind of look the part. You might remember Lonnie Ross as the member of the writer's room in the earlier seasons of 30 Rock. Back to the actual plot, Animal House is a hit, and then Doug Kenny produces and co-writes Caddyshack with Harold Ramis. It's nowhere near as big a success as Animal House, and Doug's depression and drug use get out of control. His pal Chevy Chase takes him on a trip to Hawaii, and there they alternate between trying to go clean and doing a lot of cocaine. Finally, Doug Kenny falls off a cliff in Hawaii, and nobody is really sure if it was suicide or an accident. The first half of the movie is more interesting, partly because it shows things I wasn't really familiar with, and partly because it's actually funny. I think a lot of the critics have problems with the second half where it becomes a standard story of descent into drug use, but it's kind of hard to get around that because that's pretty much what happened to Doug Kenny and a lot of his friends. I think the consensus online is that this is a pretty middling biopic, and maybe it actually is that, but I enjoyed it a lot and because of the people involved. I'm also guessing the movie is not very accurate. There's even a set piece at Doug's funeral that's just super obvious to be a thing invented for the movie, but as entertainment and telling a true story in very broad strokes, I think it was pretty good. A few extra observations I had. There was a part early on where they've written Board of the Rings, a parody book. If this movie had been done in the 90s, they would have just mentioned it and moved on. But since we have the Peter Jackson movies now, they can actually make puns about Sauron and Mordor, and they actually know that the audience will understand the puns. Joel McHale playing a young Chevy Chase is very funny, but not because I found him convincing at all with that bad wig on. It's just funny because Joel McHale worked with Chevy Chase on the NBC show Community, and Chevy Chase was reportedly an ass there too and had to be fired. People seem pretty sure McHale is cast as Chase as kind of a mean joke at Chase's expense. Besides Joel McHale, a lot of the actors in this movie look pretty close to the genuine people to me, including the guys playing Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis. The real standout to me is John Daly playing Bill Murray, not because he looks the part, but he does a really great impression. If there are ever projects in the future that require a Bill Murray sound-alike, you know, like a new Ghostbusters cartoon, people should seriously consider getting John Daly for the job. But the best little in-joke in the movie is Martha Smith making a cameo as a Hollywood studio tour guide during the filming of Caddyshack. You need to back up years and years to get this joke. 
In Animal House, Martha Smith played Barbara Jansen, and at the end of the movie, her text says she is currently a tour guide at the Universal Studios backlot. For several years, at the end of some Universal movie credits, the final image would be an ad for visiting Universal Studios and the text reading, Ask for Babs. So here, in this recursive little joke, Martha Smith, or maybe her character Babs, really is a tour guide, even if it doesn't make sense because Babs is a fictional character, even in this movie, yeah, 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 whatever, it's just a good joke, and we can leave it at that. Even more nitpicky than that, this movie ignores the fact that Caddyshack wasn't produced by Universal. Caddyshack was a Warner Brothers film, but again, it's a pretty sweet joke if you recognize Martha Smith and remember the tour guide joke. We'll bring this all up again when we discuss Animal House later. I'm not putting this movie up on the big board because it's not directed by Ivan Reitman, but I recommend you give it a watch. Hey, we've come to the end of the show. We did it! The real trick will be for me to keep doing this. I hope you enjoyed this and come back. From now on, each episode is going to be devoted to a single movie. Next week is one I was always fascinated reading about on Ivan Reitman's filmography, Cannibal Girls from 1973. Is it actually funny or is it more gross and horrific? Or is it none of these things? I hope you'll join me and we'll find out together. After that, we're not going to bother with some of the horror movies he helped produce, but we will be taking a detour to Animal House because it's just that important. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ross May, and you can say hi to me on Twitter at RossMayWriter, or visit my website at RossMayWriter.com to find my email. I want to give a thank you to Aaron Hall Holmgren for suggesting the title for this podcast. The best I came up with was The Right Stuff, which would have been confusing because Ivan Reitman did not direct the movie The Right Stuff. And a special thank you to my pal Diego Jordan, who made our awesome logo. I'll talk to you later, but for now, we better split up. We can do more damage that way. <laughs>